Hey everyone, this is Brian Hertel, Marketing Manager for Amos Media and Editor of the CoinWorld Podcast. I wanted to let you know about a special offer we have right now. As a part of CoinWorld's 60th anniversary celebration, we are offering a free 30-day trial of CoinWorld's Digital Edition. If you don't subscribe to CoinWorld or you subscribe to the print edition, now is your chance to check out what the Digital Edition has to offer absolutely free. Our Digital Edition comes straight to your inbox, so you don't even have to leave the house to head to your mailbox. To start your free 30-day trial, head to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial. I'll also put a link in the show notes. Hurry though, this offer expires May 31st, 2020. Again, head to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial to start your free 30-day trial of CoinWorld's digital edition. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event. Actually, this is the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. I'm Chris Bullfinch. We are delighted to be here this week with you for another episode where we can talk about some of our favorite subjects, numismatics and storytelling. We were able to sit down with Jerry Tebbin, a prolific numismatic storyteller, and listen to him wax poetic about the hobby and greater history at large. So that's what's on tap for this week and this show. And if you find what we're serving up on tap to be enjoyable, and if you've enjoyed any of our previous episodes that you've listened to, if they've been keeping you good company as we've all been sort of sheltering in place and all that, uh, please consider subscribing on whatever platform your podcast and keep on listening every week. Every listen we get, every subscription, that helps us continue doing what it is that we love to do. So we hope you're all staying safe and healthy and Please, if you have the opportunity and the inclination, please do consider subscribing. So, Jeff, we know Jerry Tebbin pretty well because not only has he been, a, as Jeff said, a prolific numismatic writer and has written an enormous amount for CoinWorld, he also worked as a reporter for the Columbus Dispatch from the 1970s up until the early 20-teens. And he also wrote their coin section, their coin column. So we thought that we would take a moment this week to reflect on numismatic storytelling, how we do it. Jerry Tebbin in our interview talks about how, how he's done it and some of the stories that he's covered. So Jeff, how do you tell a numismatic story and what are, is an episode or a couple of episodes from numismatic history that you feel are really good opportunities for storytelling? So one of the things that uh, is so great about this hobby is the fact that you can really bring the hobby into any discussion, right? Everything as unique or as varied as you know, you want to talk about a the Westminster Dog Show or the you know the the Kennel Club Dog Show. Or whatever. Guess what? There are dog show medals out there. There's uh, you know there are pieces related to various facets of history. Numismatic connections can be found everywhere, literally everywhere. I have been amazed in my journey at CoinWorld so far. Uh, you know, I was a collector before. Don't get me wrong. I, I had limited exposure though, but coming to CoinWorld and sort of you know having a, a front seat view on the hobby and getting to go to shows in a regular manner you get exposed to a lot of things right so you get to see how gosh you know this out here is related to this and there's there's all these intersections i like to say intersections where you know art meets history politics so forth one of my favorite stories to tell somebody who might be among the unwashed, the unconverted, try to get them into the hobby and say, 
think about things differently. There's something out there for everyone, regardless of what you're into. There's a movie that's my little sister and I, we enjoyed it. And it was based on some books by an author named Homer Hickam. And she and I, my sister and I have read a lot of the books. In fact, uh, I have several yet on my to read list. But Homer Hickam was a, a young man in West Virginia, Colwood, West Virginia in the 1950s. And what makes his story so interesting is Hollywood picked it up, turned it into a movie called October Sky. October Sky has Jake Gyllenhaal as Homer Hickam. I think there was um, Laura Dern was the teacher and Chris, somebody I can't think of his name, was the father. But anyway, it's set in a coal town, Colwood, West Virginia. And what's going on, the greater context to this is uh, Sputnik is in the air. The country's not been too far removed from the Red Scare. You know, the, the communist threat is very real. And Homer, and later gets the friends involved, they decide to pursue rocketry. They are reaching for the the heavens. They are trying to play their own little part and role in the space race, if you will. And they, as the story goes, and it's based on it's the the movie is October Sky, but it's based on a book named Rocket Boys. And I think that's actually an anagram. It's funny how that worked out. But anyway, they achieve success after much trying and effort. And of course, Hollywood gives the movie the great treatment and there's a strike and somebody has to break the strike to make a piece for Homer at the state fair, I think it was, or the the National Science Foundation. Anyway, these are based on real events, although they were glamorized by Hollywood. Homer did actually end up working for NASA. There are buildings or sites or there's some facilities or something NASA has named after this guy. And that was you know, into the seventies, maybe eighties, he was he was worked for NASA. And in the last 30 years, 20, 30 years, he's been an author, prolific author, several about growing up in Colwood, West Virginia, the Colwood Way, you know, on and on and on. What does that have to do with numismatics? Well, I like to tell them, and usually much briefer than I have here now, but, but there are coal tokens from Colwood, West Virginia. Coal script is, is another word you may have heard for it. This is company money. If you've heard the uh, Tennessee Ford song, Oh, my soul to the company store, that's talking about this sort of servitude where the workers would get paid in a localized script that could only be used at the store. There's evidence to suggest that as much in popular culture talks about how the companies were exploiting the workers and overcharging, they were also bearing the brunt of bringing the goods in, especially in a lot of those places in West Virginia and the coal country, uh, very remote. There were added expenses to get the items in. There was nothing there. And if you've read the books, especially if you've read the books, the movie touches on it a little bit. These were isolated communities in many respects. And you got everything at the store. And how did you pay for the things at the store? Well, they had their own little monetary system. And oh gosh, if if you don't have enough now to get that, then we'll just take it out of your paycheck. There were examples of folks who got too far above the raisin, as as they might say, too big for the britches, I would have heard my grandma say, and got in debt, never broke that cycle of debt. But uh, the coal script is, is very much a economic 
system, just like prison tokens or leper colony money, which is another great uh, example. If you ever want to see somebody flinch and you say, hey, are this, lepers use this as money. Wait a minute. you know, and, and they drop it or whatever. But this idea that here is a tangible link, something that I can hold in my hands that has a connection to a specific moment in history, a place in time, a story that they've heard, right? Everybody's heard of lepers. Many people have heard of this movie or, you know, they know more broadly of the space race. So to be able to say here, here's a Colwood, West Virginia token that has meaning. And that tells a story much more powerfully and more vivid than just talking about it. And yes, the movie's great and the books are great, but the thing that animates us as collectors is being able to touch history. And so that is one of my favorite sort of, if I were proselytizing, and you might say that this is a certain manner of proselytizing about the hobby, that's what I would do. I would use stories. Stories sell people on things, not even like, you know, from a commercial standpoint of making them want to buy the item. But, you know, the story, the narrative is what gets people locked in, bring them in. If you tell the story, if you connect with them that way, then you can bring them along and take them down the road and and they can head down the road with you as you, you know, use that as the entry point. There was somebody who worked at Amos, retired now. They had family members from a certain town in West Virginia. And they said, let me know if you see script from this town. I'm looking for some because that's, you know, my, my grandpa worked there and I've got a couple pieces, but I want to give all the other family members some of these because they wanted that connection. It's about connection. We all seek connection. And so that's a way to build that connection. What about you? What's your elevator speech type item? <laughs> you know, and I, that was like the stuck on an elevator speech, but what thing animates you and do you use to sort of tell people who don't know about the hobby that, hey, this is an interesting point to pick it up like you i'm engaged by material that anchors the observer in a very specific place in time i have sort of a nascent interest in ephemera for this reason um i find old checks are super interesting because they're issued i by... prefer new ones <laughs> well right <laughs> anyway but, go ahead you know, old, old collectible checks stock certificates that sort of thing is really interesting because often they're dated and often they're written out by hand and many of the institutions that would issue these things were in specific towns and they would identify the location of the town obsolete banknotes also sort of fit into this but checks and and ephemera tend to be a little bit more accessible not only in terms of being able to understand what they are but just financially they're just they're cheaper sure one of the pitches that i give is in one of my collecting areas of interest are uh, u.s philippine material uh, issued between 1903 and 1947 depending on peace in question, the United States struck coins for use in the Philippines after we acquired them in the Spanish-American War in 1898. And I became interested in this material largely as a result of my own, as you mentioned, Jeff, personal connection as being a powerful motivating factor in terms of getting people interested in collecting or in history more broadly. My sort of entree to Philippine material and the sort of natural starting point of my interest. So my paternal grandfather, my father's father, was a commander in the Navy during World War II, and he collected coins from all of the different places he went. He was assigned to convoy duty in the Atlantic for most of the war, and then in the spring of 1945, he was transferred to the Pacific. 
where his ship might have participated in the assault on Japan, but they had recent they were relatively recently arrived in the Pacific when the war ended. And he took a fascinating photos, uh, many of which we have in family albums, and he brought coins home. And my, my older brother and I would spend long hours when we were young rooting through them on the floor and, and picking them out and sort of thinking about what kind of stories these coins could tell, if they could talk. That's kind of a common turn of phrase that a lot of hobbyists use, like, oh, if this coin could only talk. And so we were interested in that. And also, some of the coins are just from fascinating places. There's a, a, a czarist Russian piece. There's a, a Chinese junk dollar, which is a series we've actually talked about here on the podcast in a previous episode. There were Mexican silver pesos. And there were Philippine coins. There were U.S. Philippine issue coins. And even as a young kid, I was fascinated by the fact that this was a coin that was struck. A lot of them were uh, 1944D 10 centavos. You know, I was fascinated by the idea that this little silver coin could have been struck in Denver, shipped to the Philippines, and found its way into my grandfather's hands, who then brought it back to the United States and brought it back to Massachusetts, right? That's that sort of long circuit about the world sort of fascinated me. And I've maintained that interest. And the more that I've learned about sort of the the U.S. administration of the Philippines, the more I've learned about sort of the American imperial project. And I think that U.S. Philippine material can very evocatively illustrate the fact that the United States is an imperial power. It, it was in 1903, and it in some ways remains so today. And even though there's you know disagreement about whether the term imperial or empire is necessarily appropriate – it's interesting because I think it challenges, as Americans at least, and as an American, it challenges my sense of my own country's values and the values that I hold. And I think it can spark a really interesting conversation. And moreover, that's just not something that a lot of people probably know. Not to imply that there is necessarily an average person or someone who has an average amount of numismatic knowledge. But if you pulled 10 people off the street, and ask them, did the United States strike coins for any other countries? And if so, why? Most of them probably wouldn't be able to answer that. But if you delve into that history, and if you use those coins as a mechanism by which to examine that history, it comes alive and it can engage people in a way that they might not otherwise be engaged by that history. So that to me is the highest aspiration of any numismatic storyteller would be to try to get people who might not otherwise know engaging with history and engaging with the material that we all collect. And what's beautiful about that and what I like about that is that you don't have to write a column for Coin World or any other numismatic publication to do that. All you have to do is, you know, if you're a kid in school, I did this in college, you know, bring a few of your items if you're taking a history class, if you're a student, bring some of your material into class and and ask the teacher if you can share the stuff and talk about it. If you if you have the opportunity to to share the hobby in other contexts. It provides an opportunity and a, and a potential forum for learning and for sort of intellectual growth. That's something that's that's tremendously valuable to me. I mean, there's a lot of military-related stuff, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's tons. And another example I would cite out of the sort of World War II era material would be something called short snorters. And it's possible that these are front of mind for me because I just ordered and received in the mail an interesting set of these. But Short snorters are essentially notes, you know, pieces of paper money that a group of people, generally soldiers and more specifically soldiers, 
or sailors, people who are in the armed forces in one capacity. Service or members, yeah. Um, will often, and typically they're all in the same unit, though that's not always the case, will take a piece of currency from either somewhere where they're serving or something that is issued to them by the military that they're serving with. And what they'll do is they'll all sign it. That way, you know, you have a memento from your comrades in arms and, you know, you can take it back as sort of a keepsake. And people made these a surprising number of these. They're available in large numbers. Usually, if you know a paper money dealer, they probably have some. And, and if not, they know where you could probably find them. Some of them are quite rare. You can find people who are relatively famous who have signed notes. Or you can just find you know, a number of people in a unit, any number of different kinds of units who all just sign the same piece of currency. And some of those people you can track down in their records, figure out when they served, who they were, you know, learn a few biographical details about them. We had a great interview where we talked to a researcher whose overriding focus is gaming tokens that were struck and used on bases in Vietnam. And the researcher had actually dug through and identified a bunch of fire bases and other small encampments using the tokens that were issued and had completed a massive catalog of them. It's another way to sort of interact with history and another way to understand it. Moreover, it's just a fun research project. And he learned biographical details that a lot of people might not have known. And he was actually able to get into contact with the families of veterans and share with them some details about their loved one's service that might not previously have been known. This is all rather uh, a long-winded way of saying numismatics offers innumerable historical storytelling opportunities. And Jeff and I sort of have to believe that because that's, that's what we do for a living. But any of our listeners who have any uh, numismatic material, we all have the opportunity to try to use these things to to teach and to learn more about not only our own hobby, but you know world history. So everyone can and should be a numismatic storyteller. I like that's a great challenge or mission to give folks going forward is to is to tell the stories of the objects and invite people to the hobby through that item. And if you ever have a particularly successful experience of doing this, please feel free to share it with us. We'd love to hear about what happens in in listeners' lives and collecting experiences. So, you know, feel free to let us know and we might uh, we might even mention you uh, on on the pod. In staying in the historical vein, we're going to go back this time in history, this week in history. We're going to go up north to Canada. We're on May 7th. 1992. That's one of the more recent This Week in Histories. What was happening in 1992 in Canada? Well, for those who have been around a little bit, they might remember or have been exposed to, presuming most of the listeners here are in the United States. Thank you. That's cool. We all had the state quarter program from 1999 to 2008. And then we've had the successors to that, DC and territories, and then now the national parks. But The U.S. was not first with that idea. Who was first? It was Canada. And it was on May 7th, 1992, that the Yukon Territory 25-cent coin was unveiled in Whitehorse. Whitehorse is the capital of Yukon Territory. What is this? Well, this was a coin program that Canada created. The Royal Canadian Mint solicited designs from the country, from its people, And they issued circulating quarters, 25 cent pieces, in each of the 12 provinces and territories 
basically one per month throughout 1992. And so this was the Yukon Territory coin was released on, on that day. It shows a scene as what you would expect, uh, glaciers and and just ice. And I mean, it's a pretty setting, and I imagine in real life, other than it being really cold, it would, it'd be pretty anyway. That program was then sort of the inspiration for the state quarter program, Harvey Stack, here in the U.S., presented before Congress. And mentioned that as sort of, hey, this has been done here. Why can't we do that and honor the American states? Canada would again do that in 1999 and 2000. They weren't for the territories and provinces. There were different themes. But anyway, this idea of a circulating commemorative quarter that really took off in 1992 with the Canada program. And that's what we're looking at. We can see the influence into our present day. I mean, the the U.S. day quarter program is one of the recent developments from the U.S. Mint that got me into coin collecting as a kid. So, you know, it's it's interesting to consider the Canadian origins of that program. So what issue of Coin World are we looking at? We're staying in the 90s, and I believe this is because Jerry's book was published in 97, maybe? Yeah, so Gerald Tebbin, our interview subject, he has been publishing with Coin World for decades, and in 1997, a number of his stories were collected together and published as a book entitled Coin Lore. So we picked 1997 as an acknowledgement of Jerry's book. So the May 5th issue, 1997, and for those who don't understand, we've never acknowledged this in this week in Coin World history segment before. Coin World has always had a cover date two weeks after the date that it actually gets ink on the paper. And that's to allow for the printing and the mailing and for people to receive the item in their mailbox. So what was the headline then? Well, it's a smaller headline than some others on that page. But the most interesting to our listeners probably is the Platinum American Eagle First Strike Ceremony that was being conducted at the West Point Mint. Now, these were proof examples. This was the first Platinum U.S. coin, regular issue coinage. I think there may have been some patterns, but we're not counting them because those were not intended. This was to be issued all in platinum as as the core foundation of its being. American Eagle, first $100 denominated U.S. coin, uh, was in proof. The ceremony was on May 1st, so we were promoting uh, in the May 5th issue an item that was upcoming. You also have on the front page a neat find. I would have loved to have found this, although in 1995 there was no way I was carrying a $100 bill around. Ohio readers found a $100 Federal Reserve note with the watermark and security thread flip-flopped. In other words, the notes were printed incorrectly, and these surfaced, just a handful, a couple of them. And in fact, the ones that came to CoinWorld's attention were here in Ohio, but there was another one that was turned in to the Secret Service in a casino of all places. And uh, what happened? Well, the casino in Atlantic City, New Jersey, they thought somebody was trying to scam them. They said, this is counterfeit. We're calling the Secret Service. And they made this patron wait for the Secret Service to show up. And in the meantime, they decided to deface the bill because they said it was counterfeit. They tore it. They wrote on it, really just abused it. Certainly from a numismatic standpoint, we cringe. 
Secret Service shows up and says, um, yeah, guess what? That is real. We'll take that. Thanks. Bye. The platinum from a bullion standpoint is really exciting, but that's a fun story. Wouldn't you love to find an error like that? And I can tell you the Secret Service has no jurisdiction in this case. It's not a counterfeit. They were created uh, to thwart counterfeiting during the American Civil War when federal paper money first came to being. Later, that role would evolve into what we know as the modern-day Secret Service and protecting presidents and past presidents and so forth. So I would love to find one of those and no need to call the Secret Service because it's perfectly okay to own and it's going to the bank. Not the bank bank, but the safe deposit box. So what caught your eye? May 5th, 1997. The letters to the editor page, people were feeling pretty strongly about the Mint's release of the Botanic Gardens commemorative coin. So in 1997, the U.S. Mint released Botanic Garden commemorative coin series celebrating the National Botanic Garden. And as happens today, there was quite a bit of consternation about how the Mint sold the coins, who ended up getting the coins, and the ordering and distribution process caused quite a stir. There are two letters in particular that caught my eye, the first of which comes from a person named J.M. Colwick, and it reads, In CoinWorld's article, March 17th, that's when the article was published, Mint Director Deal was quoted as saying that the order processing procedures were put into place to ensure equitable treatment of customers. The statement by Mr. Deal read, quote, Limit the number of sets per order to ensure that as many customers as possible will have the chance to buy this very popular product. Well, the letter continues, the bottom line is that the U.S. Mint failed to not only follow its own set order processing procedures, but ultimately failed us, the customers. I know that there are other collectors, such as my father, who have been collecting commemorative coins for over 25 years and do so for the sheer enjoyment, beauty, and fun of coin collecting that also received a dear customer rejection letter. I'm frustrated that the Mint failed me, but I'm downright angry that the Mint failed my father and so many other collectors. CoinWorld set a new hype standard for journalism. It was already known to be a hot commodity. CoinWorld continued the whirlwind of news of how collectors were beating the system. This person is expressing evident disappointment with having not received one of the coins, even though they badly wanted one. Another person was even less sanguine about their feelings about the impact of the Mint's ordering and distribution policy. In a letter whose title reads, Kill the Hobby, This person writes, like a number of other collectors, I've just experienced another reason for quitting the hobby after 40 plus years. I was told by the Mint that my order for the Botanical Garden commemorative coin could not be filled, that they were all sold out within seven days. The possibility of fraud or collusion is simply too great to have this issue passed off without a thorough investigation by Congress and hobby groups. Having a few selective dealers and collectors become the owners of an instant scarce, in quotes, item is just another way to kill the hobby from Joseph W. Kovach of Locust Grove, Virginia. So the Mint's distribution policies have alienated quite a few collectors over the years. And this is just one episode in a long history of people being dissatisfied, though truthfully, I do sympathize with the Mint that there's not really any way, particularly when mintages for commemorative coins are limited to tens of thousands or a couple of hundred thousand pieces. I do sympathize with the difficulty of trying to let sort of a free market operate and people who want to buy a number of coins be allowed to buy as many as they can afford or want to buy, while also respecting the fact that there are a lot of people who might be interested in the same material. There's obviously there are a lot of moving parts 
in terms of crafting and implementing that kind of policy, and it's impossible to please everyone. But, you know, obviously the Mint has run afoul of the collector community many times with issues like this in the past. And this episode from May of 1997 is just one other chapter. So you mentioned chapter. What is the chapter you're on or what is the book that you're reading right now? Uh, Last week, I got to talk about some book fun. Now it's your turn to delight us. Yeah. In this edition of what we're reading, we've inaugurated the segment. So it's my turn to share what numismatic literature I've been consuming. I actually just finished a book that I would highly recommend to all of our listeners and really anyone who's interested in U.S. monetary history and even and banking history, this book touches on uh, a lot of different themes that would resonate strongly with numismatists. It's called Face Value, The Entwined Histories of Money and Race in America. It was written by Michael O'Malley, who's a history professor at George Mason University, published in 2012. And it's really a fascinating meditation on how Americans have traditionally defined value, how those definitions of value have manifested themselves in currency policy, and how those definitions of value have been profoundly informed by, and to some extent reinforce, racist views, racial hierarchy, and how racialized definitions of value are inseparable from our understanding of value and money even today. And how those conceptions, those racialized conceptions of value have manifested and been deployed historically. So the book covers a long period of time from 17th century colonial history past the establishment of the Federal Reserve. And in its closing pages does make a few connections to contemporary movements to abolish the Federal Reserve and sort of a general leeriness about fiat currencies more broadly. So what I loved about the book is that it presents numismatists with a new lens through which to understand the history of the material that composes uh, our collections. People could understandably think of numismatic history as a little bloodless and dry, uh, disconnected from other elements of uh, social and political history. But currency in many ways is a manifestation of the attitudes and structures that produce it. And one of O'Malley's insights and one of the great strengths of the book is recognizing that our conceptions of value are informed by the relationships of power that govern our society and that racialized notions of value have undergirded our currency and how we define value for centuries going back to colonial America in the 17th century. Seeing that coins and paper money are more than just stores of wealth, they're products of people's definitions of value and that those definitions of value have historically relied on assumptions of essential racial difference and assigning value to those essential differences is, at least from my perspective, a critical element to thoughtful collecting. O'Malley's book is well-researched and engagingly written. I'd recommend it to any collector or anyone who's interested in United States monetary and social history. Uh, it was a really great read, and I would encourage people uh, from the podcast to, uh, to check it out. Sounds like it's worth checking out. My copy arrived recently. I have not picked up on it yet, but do look forward to that. As you well know, and listeners, I've been working on organizing the library. So that's great. And maybe springboard on that for discussion down the road. Let's get some trivia done and then we can uh, get, get to Jerry's interview. Last week, I asked you what three trees appear on silver Massachusetts colonial coinage. It's your home state. It's, uh, you know, everybody loves colonial coinage. 
Do you have any idea what crops are growing? What What's the harvest to be found there, as it were? Looking out across my backyard, I can see at least a couple of the trees that appear on the Massachusetts colonial coinage. That would be pine, oak, and willow, correct? That is correct. You got it. I think I can see at least one, if not two, of those kinds of trees looking outside of my house. So go. their appearance on Massachusetts coinage is uh, is appropriate. So many great topics we can talk about, man, that we've referenced as an, as an aside sort of, or you know, just a mention, and we'll have to go back and pick up on. Because we were in Canada a little bit ago, I decided to find a trivia question from Canada this time, and I'll ask you that. When did Canada strike its first silver dollar for circulation? So you don't give me the answer now. We're going to have it next week. Can't jump the gun on this. I'll have to reflect on that. Uh, we've talked about it before as as hobbyists, I'm pretty sure. So I think we've even alluded to the first dollar coin in yeah. a previous episode yeah. of the podcast. Yeah. But you so, know what? I'm sure a keen-eared listener might be able to tell me if we actually have or not. Yeah. But anyway, in the meantime, please enjoy our interview with our colleague and friend of the podcast, Jerry Tebbin. Today, we are fortunate to have Jerry Tebbin with us. Mr. Tebbin is well known to readers of CoinWorld for his freelance work in all sorts of topics there, writing a column every month, I believe. Uh, he's also the editor of The Sentinel from the Central States Numismatic Society, a name that you cannot avoid in numismatic literature. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. We always like to talk about collector origin stories because somebody who comes to where you are now knows where you are now, but where were you then and how did you get in? Everybody has a story. What's yours? You collected since, uh, I think, the late 1950s. How did you get started and what brought you into coins? Well, I started as a kid and probably like everybody my age, I just turned 71. I started with the Whitman Blue Book of uh, Lincoln Sense. All the kids were collecting them and so did I. Uh, there was a bit of a competition to fill that book, and we all thought, of course, that the 1955 S. Penny was just about the rarest coin in all of the world. I remember the first time I saw a new Hispanic news, which was then the only publication, and there was an ad from a dealer offering wholesale prices for them, and he was offering to pay two cents a piece for them, <laughs> which we all thought was criminal because they were, of course, worth a fortune. <laughs> and completing that set, though, took some time. In fact, it's just about the only set I ever did complete. I got onto other things. But that 55S hole just stared at me. And back then, this is about 1959, 1960, just as the Lincoln Memorial set was coming on, uh, you could still find the odd Indian set in, in circulation. And I found it 1879, which is not a bad date. And I took it to the local coin store in Butler, Pennsylvania, and wanted to trade. It had a catalog value of $2 in the 55S was a dollar, and I thought I should be able to get two 55Ss for my coin, not understanding wholesale retail or just the general mechanics of trading because I was like nine or 10 years old. He did trade me even for it, and he made out pretty good, And but I had the 55S and I was happy to have completed the set. After that, I stopped collecting for a while and took it up towards the end of high school, you know, college, whenever your life gets, gets to the point that you can be, start collecting things. And then I wanted to look for coins that had historical interest, coins that were just wonderful to own because of the story. And that can be anything from a 1909 VDB penny, which just has that great story about Victor D. Brenner being denied his right. 
to things like a peace penny of William the Conqueror. In uh, 1086, he issued pennies, uh, little silver coins that had the word peace on the back. And while I thought it had to do with his conquering England, it didn't really. It had to do with achieving peace among the rival barons in England. But it's a great historical coin, and I love owning it. History seems to have been a guiding force for you since that story, since uh, completing that Lincoln set. What elements of history behind different coins do you find most important and most engaging? You know, I love the fact that they were actual money, that they bought things, and that you can touch You can have a coin dated 1776 and know when it was issued and know the importance of that date, but you can also know that it was part of of the revolution. I don't collect much paper money, but one thing I do have is a New Jersey uh, bill dated 1776 that was signed by John Hart, one of the signers of the Declaration. I think something on the order of eight or nine signers of the Declaration also signed paper money because they were esteemed people in their communities and, and responsible. And here's a bill. It's a very... It's the least valuable of all the bills that were signed by signers, but it has a direct connection to the founding of the country. It was valued as money in the marketplaces. You can't get much more historic than that. The bill, not one I own, comes with a really good story, though. New Jersey bills were signed by three people of of note in their community. Some John Hart bills were signed by just two people because the British came and raided the storehouse where they were kept and circulated them. These notes are especially prized because they're signed by only two people, one of them being John Hart. But you can touch history, and I just love that. My favorite coin is the Cistercius, a large bronze coin that was issued by Claudius. And it's a beat-up piece of crap. I mean, if you saw this in a junk box, you thought it was, you thought it, it didn't even belong there. It's so, so ugly. But it was counterstamped NCAPR, which means either Nero or Nerva approved of its continued circulation, even though it was underweight. But it's a coin that you know circulated in the marketplace that was issued in the name of one emperor and allowed to continue circulating in the name of another. There are two theories of whether Nero, the, the next emperor, allowed it, or whether Nerva, an emperor three or four down the line, allowed it. Logic would indicate that it was Nerva, but I like to think that it was Nero just because he's a better emperor. What a great story about him. So it seems that at your core, you are a storyteller and numismatics are a great venue by which you can tell stories, but that's not the only stories you've told. Let's talk about your professional career for a a bit. You worked for the Columbus Dispatch for almost... 30 years, 40 years? Is no, it? 40 years if you count my internship, 39 if you don't. How would you compare numismatic journalism to more conventional mainstream journalism? And what did you do there? Maybe that's the more important question first. Well, I started at the dispatch in 1972 as an intern and then was hired the next year as a reporter. I was a reporter for a few years, covered government, then became a copy editor because you had to know both the writing and the editing side to, to get ahead in the business. And then after that, I was assistant city editor, zoned editions editor at a time when we were creating newspapers to circulate uh, in the periphery of our circulation area, business editor and metro editor in charge of uh, the entire news product. And I ended as assistant editor for electronic publishing on the web. So I was in just about every aspect of the paper. And newspapers aren't what they were. When I worked there, our circulation was north of 300,000. And now it's scraping by at about 50,000. People don't subscribe to the paper. It's not the uh, the vehicle, the important vehicle that it was in the life of the community. I'm sad for that, and I don't understand that anything is actually replacing 
what is providing you know basic news about your community to people who live here. Well, certainly in my brief time in Ohio, I, I worked for the Sydney Daily News for a short period of time, and they were even consolidating in the time that I, I lived in Western Ohio. So that's a challenge obviously faced by a lot of publishers. You did, though, when you were working for the Columbus Dispatch, have a pen name um, <laughs> under which you published articles about numismatics, right? I did. I wrote the coin column for the paper from about 1980 to about 2005 or so. In the 70s and 80s and before, newspapers, especially Sunday newspapers, tried to cater to just a wide variety of people. The theory was that if 5% of the people read about one thing, and if you had 20 things that individuals would read about, you'd get them all. We even had a column about how to take care of your horse. <laughs> Huh. But I wrote about coin. We hadn't had a coin column before then, and it was uh, a way for me to make a little money, not very much, and to write about what I love writing about, which is coins. I started it after I had left reporting and was working on the copy desk and really liked it as a vehicle to continue writing uh, and to tell stories. And I wrote it under the name of George Stabinsky. And there's a story to that. <laughs> I love this story. My real name is Gerald Tebbin. And I write, wrote for the paper under that name. I was in the phone book. I thought that reporters should be accessible to the public. And if you don't remember what a phone book is, it was a list of everybody in the city, <laughs> their, their address and their phone number. And you could call anybody up, uh, including the reporters. And people did. They but printed thought, them on dead tree and physically brought them to you. <laughs> yes, yes. It was wonderful. It just sounds so strange now that such a thing existed. But I thought anyway. it was important to be accessible to the community for people who wanted to contact. But I didn't want people generally to know that I collected coins. Now, I'll give the standard caveat that, of course, everything is at the bank. Nothing is whole. However, not everybody knows that and not everybody believes that. I didn't want it, though, just to be generally known that I, that I collected coins. And if you went to my house, you might see me fiddling with coins. So I wrote it under a pen name, and I thought I had invented it. I thought I made it up because I had read a spy novel recently about how spies invented names or used fake names that were similar to their real names so that if they were caught unawares, they would, they would automatically answer to it. So I came up with the name of George Stabinsky, kind of a strange name. And I wrote into that for 10 or more years until one day my children and I were visiting my mother's grave site, the first time I had seen it since I was a child. And one of my children pulled me to see the grave next door. And there's George Stabinsky. I saw this guy's name as a child. It stuck with me someplace in the back of my mind. And for uh, 30, 20, 30 years or so, he wrote a coin column for the Columbus Dispatch. <laughs> as far as topics that you covered for the Columbus Dispatch's coin column that George Stabinsky wrote, um, <laughs> did you find that readers of the Columbus Dispatch responded to different topics than a coin world audience might? And did you write the articles for the Columbus Dispatch about coins differently than, than you would for a coin world article? And if so, what were those differences and how did you write them? Well, they were two distinctly different things. The article, the columns for the dispatch were a question and answer. People, generally non-collectors, wrote in asking about what their thing was worth. And sometimes there were some pretty good stories there. People have astounding things. Mostly they don't. So if somebody wrote in about their 1864 uh, large motto, two cent piece, you got to tell the story of In God We Trust. And the national motto appeared on a coin for the first time. And by the way, it's not worth very much, you know, five, six bucks, whatever it was worth then. Uh, but sometimes there were some good coins that came through. More than once, people wrote in with fractional gold pieces, real fractional gold pieces from California, not, not the later date charms. And one time, 
a person wrote in with, I don't remember the date, but it was the 10th known Swedish half dollar. I think that was the denomination uh, from the 1840s. A very rare coin that you wouldn't expect to turn up in you know, somebody's grandma's accumulation. This was before the internet. I went with it was unpriced in the standard catalog. It still may be unpriced. It's it's a very scarce coin, but I was very uh, pleased that I hooked the person up with Oslo Mindenthal out of Oslo. I don't know if they're still mm. in business, but with an auction house in the country where the coin would be uh, valued and appreciated, and I don't remember what it sold for, but it got a good value for a rare coin turned up in somebody's grandma's accumulation. For the coin world, though, I got to write about anything I pleased, and it's been a wide variety of subjects. I was very blessed. I was young. I was maybe 30, not quite, when I approached uh, Margot Russell about writing for her, and she very kindly let me do it. I don't know why, because I didn't have any credentials. My, my library was minimal, but I, I could tell a story. I guess she recognized that and, and let me write for coin world, and it's been a pleasure to do that ever since. But I get to write about anything I want. The column I most remember having the most fun, though, with was didn't have anything to do with coins. It's about manhole covers. I wrote this in the 1990s, right before the state quarter program was beginning. I reprised it last year in a presentation to the local coin club, uh, the Columbus Numismatic Association, Central Ohio Numismatic Association, I'm sorry, for uh, April Fool's Day last year. But manhole covers, they're round. Often they have a date, and sometimes they have designs on them. So I like them. I, I, I think they're just really neat things. And uh, I actually have one. It took me a while to get it. And I didn't pay any money for it. And if the city officials found out, they'd probably be trying to confiscate it. But a few, <laughs> well, a dozen we'll, years. We'll, we'll have to keep this, we'll have to keep this the, podcast a little bit under wraps then. That, the question I want to know is, will it hold her? <laughs> no. That, That's what I was going to uh, ask too. I'll tell you about That'd be that. a big slab. First off, though, I've got to tell you how I got it. The city was going through our neighborhood. They were replacing the manhole covers. I don't know why these things never wear out, but they were, and they wanted to use my garage. It's on a corner lot as a place to store their manhole covers so people wouldn't steal them. And I said, yeah, but I'm going to charge you rent. I want a manhole cover. <laughs> and they said, yes. So I've got, <laughs> I've got a manhole cover. It's got a city seal on it. It's a really neat thing. And it's in the garage where they left it because that thing weighs a ton and it's not moving anywhere. <laughs> Back to your question about holdering it, though. Uh, they don't make two-by-twos for them. But if you wanted to and you had some two plywood. Two-foot-by-two-by-foot. <laughs> Two-foot-by-two-foot, yes. If you had some plywood and some plyofilm, you could make your own. I don't know how you could get into your bank, but that's another question entirely. Manhole covers have a date, and I just find that fascinating. The, the dates fascinate me about coins, and, and they relate to my life. I pick up a coin from 1967, and I remember what I was doing then. Manhole covers in my neighborhood date from about 1927 on up to the current day. I live in Columbus, Ohio. I live in a section called Clintonville. And while my family moved away after World War II, just before I was born, my parents grew up here. They dated uh, in my neighborhood. They went to the amusement park long since gone. It was about a block away. And I like to walk down the street and think about where I was in my life, where they were in their lives when those things happened. So the manhole covers to me are, are kind of like coins. I wish I had more. Everyone has a story. 
Your point about the dates and, and reflecting on what stage of life or what circumstance of life you were in, that certainly, that resonates with Jeff and I, definitely resonates with us. Also, you made a comment about uh, writing, contacting Margot Russell to write for CoinWorld without much of a numismatic library. And that's another thing that resonates with, I had a parallel experience a couple of years ago when I first started writing for CoinWorld. So it's interesting to hear that other people have uh, have similar stories. Mm-hmm. So a compilation of your articles was published in 1997 under the the title Coin Lore. Right. What stories would you include in a new edition that covers the work that you've done since 1997? Oh, boy. I don't have a good answer for that. I've been cleaning out the attic. Everybody is confined now, and uh, the attic has been calling. And I've been cleaning out the attic, and I found a, a box of those upstairs. And I was leafing through them and remembering the columns I had written then. One thing about writing professionally is that after a while, it all just kind of blurs. When I started oh, writing yeah. for the paper, I saved everything. And there is actually a box upstairs of clips from 1973 or four, but there's none afterwards <laughs> because you just don't save them anymore. You just don't remember them. There's no overarching theme to what I write. There's no high points and low points. They're all, I guess, kind of the same. When I decide what to write each month, I try to be somewhat topical if, if it's possible. But if I can't, then I just go look at my library and see what's in there that interests me. My next column for Coin World is on something called Touch Pieces, which I think, Jeff, you Ah. told me you had also written about. Well, in a recent monthly of Coin World, I did, I think it was the um, April monthly, I had a page exploring plague and disease-related items. Uh, I thought it was rather topical, so I I included a couple coins honoring Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis, the Austro-German doctor who discovered that washing your hands before surgery helped women stay alive. Post And some other things that were related in there that touch pieces were part of that because of their, you know, their, their very mystical nature and their, their service in a way to ward off diseases. This is a a page that I put together every month called the photo finish. And so it necessarily is brief. And so I didn't get to really dive deep into the story behind touch pieces. It was a paragraph explaining them. So I think your full-blown column is a nice compliment because if somebody saw that and went, oh, I want to know more about this, well, here you go. You're answering the call right away. But these are just a a neat historical item. The king had the power to cure disease. It was God-given, of course. And Charles II was renowned for being especially proficient at that. And Samuel Pepys and John Evelyn recounted the ceremony in their diaries. A touch piece was a coin, gold, that the king would give you after he touched you to cure you of scarfula, which was a a tuberculin disease that uh, made your neck swell and break out with pustules. It was pretty ugly. In fact, it was so ugly that after a while, Charles decided he wasn't actually have to touch the people. But after he uh, touched them and cured them, he gave them a, a gold angel, a, a large gold coin with an angel on one side and a ship on the other that was hold for, uh, you could wear it around your neck. And after he cured you, he uh, gave you this and you wore it around your neck forever and were cured. And I think Evelyn recounts that 92,000 people were cured by him. And no later kings tended to not do it. And I think it died out completely in the early 18th century. But it's just a, a great piece of history, numismatic history, that relates to our current time. 
So in terms of relating numismatic history to unfolding current events, a lot of people have speculated about how to get a broader audience engaged with numismatics, and, and numismatic storytelling seems to be a logical avenue by which to do that. And, and your work, um, writing about coins for the Columbus Dispatch and for Coin World, sort of bridges those gaps between mainstream media, so to speak, or stories that are, are in wide circulation with a non-collecting public. Going forward, how do you think numismatic writers and numismatists could engage people outside of the industry and share some of these fascinating stories that you've elaborated on so well? That's a good question, but it's it's the question you ask, but then it's also the implication of what it means for the future. People love to hear stories, and people who love history love to hear stories about history, even if it relates to coins. I don't know that it you can convert somebody who loves history into being a coin collector as much as you'd like to. In fact, my one of my children is very much involved with history. And I give him coins and he appreciates what they're about, but he doesn't collect himself. It's hard to go from there. And then the implications about, about what that means for the future. And that's really is how do you get younger people? How do you get people at all? But how do you get younger people to collect? And boy, I wish I had an answer to that. I reflect back on when I started collecting and what it meant to me. And it was a very juvenile thing. There was treasure. I could, by looking through coins, find something that had value. The history was cool, too. I mean, I loved when I found the Carson City silver dollar from time to time. You could still find them, and they were worth a buck if they were circulated. But there was a possibility of finding treasure. And that's why I looked through rolls and put the pennies in the board and kept looking for that 1909 SVDB penny or the 21-piece dollar, none of which I ever found. But everybody, the coin publications back then had coin finds columns. And I and my friends used to devour those. Look, did you see where this guy found something? And in fact, I knew a kid who actually found something. It was amazing. He found a 1914-D penny in Hackettstown, New Jersey. And he used that, he sold the coin, and he bought a Schwinn bicycle with it. <laughs> and there were many discussions about, would you rather have the coin or would you rather have the Schwinn bicycle? Well, <laughs> at 12, I'd rather have the Schwinn bicycle. <laughs> but it's hard. That taps into something that's the psychological nature. As you were talking about retelling that story, I couldn't help but think how uh, during the Great Depression, the board game Monopoly flourished. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. it, it gave something you know to people to be excited about and dreaming about these riches. And especially at a time when things were not so good, there's something psychological and innate about the treasure hunt. Right. Very much uh, almost hunter-gatherer, you know, back to the, you know, looking to find sustenance and, and you had to you had to find your prey to make it another day. It sustained me. It kept my interest and did that through about 1970 when you could no longer really find anything in circulation. Silver had disappeared. Wheat pennies had disappeared. There wasn't much left. When I started collecting, you could find 100-year-old coins in circulation and not think a whole lot about it. Silver dollars from the 1870s were available at the bank for a buck, all you wanted. Buffalo nickels were common. Standing Liberty quarters were not uncommon, usually without a date. War pennies, the 1943 steel cents, were everywhere. In fact, we always thought they were kind of lucky, so you keep that for a little while before you spent it. But that's gone. It's unfortunate. And what we have now, even though you can still find coins easily going back to uh, 1959 for pennies and 1938 really for nickels, you can still find those in circulation. 
their need historically, but what you find in circulation isn't really marketable. You're not going to find something in circulation that has value. So the treasure hunt aspect is gone. Yeah. I mean, I even think back to when I was in high school and college working at Walgreens, I would find early Jefferson Nichols, silver Jefferson mm-hmm. Nichols, frequently enough. And, and you know, that was 20 years yeah. ago, and you just don't see that today. So. no. no times change and things move, but it definitely a different landscape. I do want to touch upon one thing though, before we, we close today, you have told countless stories, countless words, numismatic and otherwise, but thinking numismatically, what's the one story or a, a few stories yet that you have not yet told that needs telling? <laughs> I don't know. I think needs is too strong of a word. Needs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, that begs to be told. <laughs> I, I can tell you what, what projects I'm working on now. <laughs> okay. I'm scheduled to write two cover stories for Coin World Monthly this year, and they're due in the fall because usually in the spring I'm very busy. I, I do taxes for senior citizens as part of the AARP Foundation yeah. Tax Aid Program. And then right now, there's the Central States Convention, which in a normal time, I'd be actually driving to Chicago today to, to attend. Correct. But I've had a lot of free time. So I did the October cover story the other day and gave it to Bill Gibbs saying, if you want to use it early, go ahead. Uh, and that's about the first spouse coinage, which has great stories. One of them shows Dolly Mattis with the painting of George Washington that she saved from the British. Yeah, the uh, British, yeah. And another, the next story that I've got to write uh, for Coin World is on collectible counterfeits. And we all hate the Chinese and what they're doing, but there's a really lot of neat 19th century and even later counterfeits that circulated that we all have kind of a, a soft spot for and love them. The 1945 uh, Henning nickel, the, the fake nickel without the, uh, the mint mark above Monticello on the back. Great story, great counterfeit. Everybody loves to own one. I'm working on that. And I'm also researching for a book, which I put on hold for a couple of years, but have the time to get back to. There were nine issuers of Civil War tokens in Columbus, Ohio, and there nothing is known about them, uh, about the lives of the people who issued them. And so I've been researching that. And there are just some fascinating stories here. One of them I discovered died of diphtheria, which is a disease we just don't even hear about anymore but it strangled you. It caused a growth to grow in your throat and you knew it for about a week until you couldn't breathe anymore and you died. Uh, And this guy died of that. And it was recounted in the newspapers. And another guy, I just found his obituary yesterday, died after three weeks of having a cold. He was well one minute and then he dropped dead in his store. It was just a flu. It was just the flu. One thing that we now have before us that we never had before, and I'm just mining it, is the newspapers have all been digitized and all that information is available and accessible. It used to be you had to leaf through every page of every newspaper to find what you were looking for. And now you can just type in a name and up it pops. Chronicling America with the Library of Congress is an absolutely fantastic resource, yes. a digital newspaper database. I, I sent Jeff a story from 1888 in Sydney, Ohio, mm-hmm. the other day about a person who just went insane in Sydney, Ohio, and they wrote a little story about him. So I've gone, I've gone insane in Sydney, Ohio a few <laughs> times. <laughs> but you know, it, it's a fantastic resource. How do you think that a resource like that could be most effectively leveraged by numismatic researchers and writers? Oh, uh- a thousand ways. Uh, for one thing, finding out about the people who were involved in, in historical events. Uh, and you're right, that resource includes Columbus newspaper, the Ohio State Journal. 
uh, as well as colonial papers. But there's just a wealth of information out there that we had no way of knowing. One thing I like to do for the local coin club, I, I write the newsletter, is when I have space to fill, I look for something in an old newspaper about counterfeiting and type counterfeiting into Google uh, News Archive or, or the Library of Congress. And any number of incidents will show up where miscreants in your town or the next town over were, were counterfeiting not, not only paper money, but coins too, and we're passing it in the marketplaces. There's lots of great stories out there. There are just facts that have been forgotten. I found one, wrote a column about it actually a couple months ago. Jonas Salk was a hero of, of mine, everybody else's in the 1950s. He uh, invented the polio vaccine and uh, it saved everybody's swimming pools. We no longer had to worry about catching that disease. And there is a, I forget which uh, senator proposed it, but so he proposed a, a dime with his picture on it and even made a mock-up of it or a crude mock-up of it. And I found it, I think, in a Life magazine in a random search. There's all kinds of history out there that we're not aware of. It's neat that we can finally do it just by searching. Awesome. We we love that you are bringing history alive numismatically and otherwise, and we hope to do that here as well. Any closing thoughts today? Well, just on the status of coin shows, this is normally a day that I'd be driving to Chicago for the Central State Show, and it, of course, is not being held this year. I know that some dealers are, are pulling out of, or not committing to the ANA show in Pittsburgh, even though that's later on in the summer, out, out of fear, out of personal fear of, of their health and out of fear that uh, the customers, their, the fear for the health of their customers and whether they would actually attend. We are at a point in the hobby that I think two, three years we'll look back on and see how our hobby survived and, and hopefully persevered through it. Regional coin shows, even national coin shows, are dependent upon the auctions that uh, fund no small part of it. And the auction houses rightfully have uh, are holding their auctions in their in their hometowns, uh, in, in where their base is, and saving a lot of money in the process. And I have a fear, uh, based on nothing, that it might be yet one more uh, nail in the coffin, I guess, of regional coin shows. I love to go to coin shows. I love to to handle what I'm buying. I, I don't like to buy it without seeing it and touching it. And I love to be around the accumulation of collectors there. And I just hope that we can continue doing that. Amen. Amen. Uh, on that note, we hope to see you at a coin show this year, maybe even the Central Ohio Numismatic Association show with the Green Hats Labor Day weekend Labor in Day weekend. Columbus, uh, That's right. near Columbus, Dublin. Dublin uh, always a great time to drive over there on a Friday morning, go to the show, have some Jenny's ice cream or some graters afterward. Great show, great town, great people. And uh, hopefully that will be still on track Labor Day weekend this year. Until we meet again, thank you so much. Thank you and, for having uh, me. We're just so delighted and can't express that enough. Stay safe. Be thank well. Thank you so much. You too. That was our interview with Jerry Tebbin, who is well-known to Coin World readers and members of the hobbyist at large. We thank you for being here today and just hanging on for what was a really long show, but we covered a lot of ground. We had a lot of fun, certainly. Hope you come away with some new knowledge and, and some enjoyment and entertainment. If you enjoyed it and were entertained by it, Please continue to listen every week on whichever platform you get your podcasts. And if you can, and if you're so inclined, please consider subscribing. And, you know, we hope that all of our listeners are staying safe and healthy, and we will meet back with all of you next week. In the meantime, happy collecting. 
Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. Hey everyone, it's Brian again, reminding you to check out our free 30-day trial of CoinWorld's digital edition. The offer expires on May 31st, 2020, so head to coinworld.com slash 30-day trial or follow the link in the show notes today.